I'm Rob. And I'm Mark. And welcome to yet another episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast. Tonight, we dial down our usual ranting and raving from 11 and settle back, crack open a scotch, light up a cigar, and start our irregular series, Remember When. A man is the sum of his memories, you know, a time lord even more so. Welcome back, everybody. As Rob mentioned before, we set off on our first journey into Remember When, where we asked fans of a certain vintage to cast their minds back to when they started watching the show and other memories of that ilk. And it's our pleasure tonight to uh, introduce our first guest. He is an ex-Planet Mondas Gruntcaster and also occasional contributor to Something Who. It's Mike. Hi, Mike. How are you tonight? Hi, Mark. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. You did fit our bill of a uh, slightly mature fan. So uh, when we were sort of uh, thinking about this segment, we thought, who could we uh, get on first? And your name came up very quickly. So welcome. Well, thank you very much. So how have you been, Mike? Good. I've been fine. How have you been, gentlemen? Yes, we're all still a little bit locked down, aren't yeah. we? That's all we can say, really. Every day is like Sunday, as Morrissey used to say. Is that before he became a ranting lunatic, or...? <laughs> The Lawrence Fox of the Smith thing is turning into that moment. So. <laughs> How topical, Mark. How topical. It is topical, yes. It is, it is. He's a very popular choice for the uh, next Doctor, uh, for one person. Somewhere. But let's not go there, Mark. <laughs> Before we start into our um, into this uh, discussion, uh, Fury from the Deep, the uh, reanimated version, has been released in the UK. Gentlemen, it hasn't been released in Australia yet, um, and we don't know when. Probably November. It's usually about six weeks, isn't it, after the UK release? So that'd be cup week. Yeah, cup week. <laughs> but not having actually watched any of it, we feel fully uh, qualified to actually pass judgment <laughs> on us. We can spend the next 45 minutes talking about it, just seeing a three-second uh, trailer. Go for it. I mean, that's how other Doctor Who podcasts do their reviews. I saw the trailer, and I thought the the animation was a, a step up from what I'd seen previously. Uh, so fr- from that angle, it, it you know, look, I'm never going to be a full appreciator of, uh, you know, animated uh, missing Doctor Who, because, again, you... It, it's never going to encompass the full range of you know performance and performance styles and and, and that sort of thing. But from what I saw, it it certainly looked you know quite nice. Uh, I think a lot of people will be what you know what buying the discs or disc. I can't remember. Is it one or two? I think it's two. It's three, it? three on the three? three on the Blu-ray. Yes. Holy moly! <laughs> well, they'll be buying it for the extras, of course. There's a, a number of documentaries uh, and you know bits and pieces that uh, are retained. I think there's even the slide, which is. Um, Victor Pemberton's uh, radio play, which uh, was either inspired uh, Fury from the Deep or was inspired by Fury from the Deep. I can't remember which. Yeah, the slide came before Fury from the Deep um, and he leveraged it uh, later on. All the best writers simply recycle. Terry Nation. (laughs) (laughs) And Victor Pemberton. So are we looking forward to buying it? Will we we be buying it when it hits JB? I've ordered the Steelbook uh, version from the UK mainly because... The prices increase dramatically when they sell out. But I will actually, because um, I think I've been a bit uh, ho-hum about a lot of the animations. That The style has been inconsistent to say the least. But Macro Terror, I didn't really enjoy at all. But I really enjoyed uh, Faceless Ones. I've just actually watched the extras they've done for the, the new Power of the Daleks edition. And uh, that's cleaned up quite nicely. So I am looking forward to, uh, to watching it. Look, at the end of the day... I used to say, well, look, the audios give a much better representation of what the story would be. 
However, I think a lot of fans, or new fans, potentially, it's a way of getting them in there with, with the animation as opposed to static, you know, 50, 60-year-old telly snaps. So, um, mm. yeah, I'm looking forward to it, actually. What about you, Mike? So am I. I feel compelled to actually buy the animations. I think that um, it gives a good sort of visual representation. I agree about Macro Terror. I did a podcast about that, so that's why I had to buy that. And I bought the Faceless Ones. The Faceless Ones was quite good. I thought it was, a, it was an improved um, animation. It's the story was a bit dull but um this one has a cracking story so um i'm really interested in this one what i liked about the faceless ones it had obviously the two existing episodes so i sort of broke it up with that where fury is like power it's basically six episodes of animation so um as long as it didn't have to sit like it did in the cinemas watching power of the dark <laughs> for two and a half hours uh, yes uh my god you deserve a medal for that mark <laughs> the worst thing was i didn't order drinks like alcohol during it yeah though no, i think six episodes will be hopefully it'll be all mm. right I, I would have thought that your hashish supplier would have been on speed dial for that one mate <laughs> <laughs> I need slightly stronger stuff for that. Mm. I'm looking forward to it, actually. Mm. We don't know when the next Classic Series box sets are coming out, the Blu-ray. So, uh, I mean, the bets are on it's going to be Season 20. I suppose if you want a Classic Who fix, this is what we have for the moment. Very true. Is there any, any rumours out there about the next uh, animation? I, I heard a whisper uh, that it may be evil. Uh, that was the, 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 the Daily Mirror was, in fact, uh, talking about that. Um, their track record yeah. is somewhat patchy, but... Isn't, what, 109 episodes in Ethiopia yeah. or something like that? Uh, and they were recording them off the, the TV. Uh. <laughs> well, the Daily Mirror is very patchy, especially when I wipe my bum on it. <laughs> is that the e-version, Mark, that you're on your laptop by any chance? Or? Delightful. And again, I heard it was a bonable snowman. I mean, obviously they're going to start ramping these a lot quicker. Is that why they've got two teams happening? You've got the one team doing the Fury animation and then Charles Norton's team doing... The other one is that i think that um one team's sort of concentrating on season four and the um the gary russell team are um focusing on series five at the moment to sort of bridge those gaps um which means that they're the ones that they're probably looking at the box sets for i, w- I would suggest yeah you would think that well i mean it's funny how they haven't released the hartnell ones yet and maybe they're on the uh on the off chance that something may potentially come back from season one or two that initial start with marco polo maybe i don't know no nothing's coming back mark we know that <laughs> you say that I rob do. but somewhere deep in your black heart it beats something for a missing episode to be returned from indiana wigan <laughs> oh, look that, that's true in my black withered heart somewhere deep in the ventricles that are screaming um you know, you'd, 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 a part of me does hope that, you know, a certain individual from a certain small town in somewhere in the UK. Is Wigan actually large or small, do we know? No idea. It's got a, it's got a football team and a rugby team, so... Well, there you go. It's, it's, a, it's a thriving metropolis, <laughs> clearly, clearly the, the heartbeat of the United Kingdom. I, look, you know, you do hope that he's found something, and for whatever reason, he's just holding it back for whatever reason. But um, I think, you know, we're all looking, hoping that maybe something unexpected from a different quarter, a different direction uh, may emerge from the, the you know the mists of uh, or the vaults of uh, some bizarre uh, nondescript country somewhere in the middle of nowhere. But, you know, we wait and see. Speaking of missing episodes and old stories, the reason we've got uh, you on, Mike, is because you have seen snippets of these stories, well, as in you've yes. never seen them. But just, just cast your mind back to um, when you were a small child. I'm assuming you were a small child back then. Mm-hmm. He sprung fully grown from the forehead of his mother, mate. What are you talking about? I only wish I had. I'd have a better memory. 
I would have remembered all of these episodes. Well, this is called Remember When, right? So this is the opportunity now so you can remember when. So take us back to whatever time it was, Mike. Talk us through what you remember seeing. Where you were watching it? What was your mum cooking at the time? My age, I'm sort of synonymous with the show because I'm, what, six days six days older than me, the program. So late November. So it's, it's really handy because when they start going on about anniversaries i can always remember how old i am it's frightening isn't it michael i was living in the uk because that's where i was born uh living in a town called reading lived there for the, for the first five years of my life which is when i sort of became a fan of this program uh, i have very very vague memories um going back uh into the early days um i don't really remember much of hartnell at all but i do have one memory uh about being caught up with dalek mania which was sort of, and I must have been a fan from that time on. And you know how there was just like everything was all Dalek everywhere. And I remember my father, who was in the Navy, and he wasn't home a lot, and he took me out somewhere. And I remember, the, I, was, I can't remember how old I was, to be honest, three maybe. And he, um, there was this Dalek, largest Dalek, probably small, but I was small, in, in a shop window. And I wanted this Dalek. And it was probably quite expensive, so Dad, decided he wasn't going to spend a fortune on me and for that reason I chucked the big temper tantrum and carried on like a pork chop but I do remember that incident quite clearly that you know the time that my father didn't buy me that Dalek. <laughs> Dalek mania was at its height around about Dalek master plan time I, I suspect that this was and then you sort of move into the later 60s uh, when I start actually getting more sort of solid memories I have a fleeting memory of uh, the doctor changing and them hiding from the Daleks in what I thought was a cave, but it's probably the Mercury Swamps in um, Power of the Daleks. And then most of my memories are at the latter end of um, uh, Troughton's run, which uh, mainly the Wheel in Space, where my first real sort of solid memory of Doctor Who begins, which was uh, episode five of the Wheel in Space, and particularly towards the end when uh, Gemma gets killed by the Cyberman, where he appears behind her on the stairs when she's on the sort of monitor thing talking to the Doctor, and then he zaps her with his chest unit thing and she dies horribly, uh, to lie there with her eyes open, which sort of freaked me out a bit when I was a kid, and still does when I see that um, the, the body lying there in episode six. So that's when I started sort of... Um, Sort of having more memories of that and then i we moved to australia in um, 1969 um, and it became sort of a little bit more difficult to watch doctor who it was on here but i was in a different country that was nothing like england uh, there was space for a start and sunshine yeah well this and it wasn't snowing i was living in a town called port augusta in south australia and i would have seen probably don't remember seeing Doctor Who at all then because I was out most of the time. Uh, then we moved to Melbourne in nine, uh, late 1969, where I've been mostly ever since, apart from a few brief sojourns to a couple of other places, which I'll talk about later. And um, that's when I saw uh, Space Pirates, uh, which I saw twice. Who did you cross to be cursed <laughs> that way, Mike? It's, it's a funny story because they used to repeat um, Doctor Who in the school holidays, in the afternoons. Uh, so it used to be on after... I remember it being on after a Canadian show called The Beachcombers um, and also another show uh, like Atomant. Oh, yeah. uh, so they're on in the afternoon in uh, during school holidays, Monday to Friday, and they'd repeat old episodes. Now, I saw Space Pirates and The Seeds of Death, 
which I both remember seeing them when they were originally broadcast here in Australia. And then I remember uh, seeing both of them on repeat, and I remember being <laughs> very upset about Space Pirates being on. <laughs> I don't think you're the only person who would say that, actually. I thought it was really dull. Like, I was eight or nine years old the first time I saw it, and I thought it was pretty dull. The second time I saw it was May School Holidays, 1973, and I was suffering from mumps. So I didn't have much chance to get out and about, because I, I have very sort of sketchy memories of per the early Pertwees being on TV, because I think I was out most of the time, or we weren't watching it or whatever. And my first real strong memories of um, a season of Doctor Who was uh, the season uh, nine, I think. I think it's nine, the one with David Daleks at the start. Yes. That's the one I remember clearly. I remember every single episode of that. And, yeah, that was sort of my memories of that sort of thing. And um, I do have one more. It's not so much a missing episode, but it's missing in its original format episode. Um, we had a trip to the UK in 73-74, and it was the first time I'd ever seen Doctor Who in colour. Uh, I saw the last two episodes of The Time Warrior, and I saw the first episode of Invasion of the Dinosaurs, which I actually saw in colour. Uh, it took me 20 years to see episode two. <laughs> but yeah, I, I actually managed to see that episode. So I have actually can say I've seen that episode in its original format, which, well, not a lot of people can say that. Well, no one in Australia can, so... No one's ever seen it in, in colour, so it's always been a sort of with me most of my life. Um, I've had times when I've sort of lost interest in it, uh, including now. I wasn't going to say that. You preempted me, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's been a constant, hasn't it, really? Yeah, look, I, look at the end of the end of the classic series, uh, the time at, uh, you know, the last season of uh, Sylvester McCoy, uh, a few of those I didn't see for a long time, like uh, the last um, serial uh, survival I didn't see until probably six or seven years later when they repeated it as a omnibus on a Saturday afternoon. If Do you remember that, Rob, when they used to have them on the ABC on a Saturday afternoon? I know I saw, I think, Trial of a Time Lord on a Saturday yeah. afternoon when it went out. Yeah. I don't recall seeing any omnibus versions, but then I, I might have been busy or I'm not aware that they were actually being screened. So. North were a good team then, weren't they? So you're probably busy watching them. Oh, yes, North Melbourne was winning quite a few games <laughs> yes. in that particular era. Yes. Yes. I remember they did have the Tom Baker's... Uh in omnibus editions like I think season 15 and, and mm. 16 and 17 and I remember seeing Castro Valva's an omnibus edition on the Saturday afternoon as well but yeah. I, I, I can't remember the, the McCoys Who was getting up at 4.30 in the morning in 1993 to record episodes? Me occasionally I set the recorder I used to record that and the uh, Jerry Anderson show UFO um, which Channel 7 was showing at about 5 o'clock in the morning so I was switching from one to the other and recording them both together <laughs> Now, Mike, I want to take I want to take you back to the mm -hmm. '60s, if you don't mind, yeah. uh, just to cover a couple of things. So, when you sort of, you know, Dalek Mania was at its height, and you're uh, you you were watching the show, I suppose you would call yourself. Would you? You're probably too young to even have the concept of a fan. Why, why were you watching? Why were you watching it on a regular basis at that age? Was your mother? Was your mum happy to uh, plonk you in front of the telly and, and watch it, or did you demand it? Do you do you know? What my mother told me, and this this is true because I have another fleeting memory of this. As soon as the music started, I used to hide behind the couch, and I used to watch it from behind the couch through my hands, and you'd watch bits of it and be petrified. And it's that, when you're a child, it's all that being scared and stuff, that that's actually, it's not really that bad, but it makes you feel sort mm. of, you know... It's the type of thing that you enjoy. You enjoy being yeah. scared. It's not frightening in any way, shape, or form. You know, you don't go to bed, you know, having nightmares about Doctor Who, unless it's the current series, or <laughs> it's different, sorry. different sorry. sort of nightmare. <laughs> 
He's going to bed sort of feeling sick, going, why is it so bad? I feel great because I watch it. (laughs) (laughs) Tried to get my daughters into Doctor Who, and it worked for a while, and then along came Chris Chibnall, and that completely blew it. They watched the first two stories of um, Jodie Whittaker, and that was it. That was it. All the good work had gone. You know, they'd sort of got on to, and they were even watching Capaldi and Moffat stuff, and they were enjoying that. As soon as Chibnall, that was it. It was gone. They go, oh, that man with the teeth monster thing. That was it. They were gone. So thanks, Chris. It's interesting, that, because my daughters, I've never made them watch it, but uh, when they heard that uh, a woman had been uh, cast, they, they just shook their head and thought, and said to me, they actually, my oldest daughter said to me, which I'm not quite sure whether it's a failure of my my parenting, but um, they, they, she, she couldn't understand why they would cast a woman in the role. Um, but look, that's fine. Um, my my daughter my daughter is woke in other in other ways. Anyway, so uh, oh, mine are very yeah, very yes. woke. Woke me up before you go go. Now no, no, let's let's go yeah. back to the sixties, the simpler, better times. Yes, the Dalek mania. <laughs> so um. Yeah, so you, you you had that, you know, there's that there's that, that attraction to the show. It, it scares you but doesn't terrify you, so you keep on coming back. Let's dwell on the fact that you watched The Space Pirates too. Our friend and fellow podcaster David Kitchen, he's re- related before that his father saw the, uh, the Web of Fear in the UK before he emigrated to Australia and saw it again. Uh, so he was mm. blessed in that way and, you know, one of the few people to be able to do so until the, the whole, uh, well, most of it was found and returned. Space Pirates doesn't have a great <laughs> reputation. Is its reputation earned is it not very good from your recollection my recollection was that it was incredibly dull Um, i think that subsequent to that i sort of read that they tried to make it realistic time frames for things to you know space travel so therefore you know it takes 25 days for them to get somewhere and and it's supposedly it's meant to be recreated in the show and it's just dull that's my my memory of it was that it was just boring it's perhaps that the only other story that i saw twice uh, that i can recall was the seeds of death which of course isn't missing but that's a completely different story um and i was quite happy to watch that um the repeats and stuff in melbourne over that time were a bit erratic if you have a look at broadcast you see there's huge Mm. gaps in between when things were broadcast uh, which is not always the same in the other states so yeah we got january we got seeds of death and it wasn't until the may 73 that we got um space pirates we got crotons in the january as well but we didn't get uh the war games repeated which if that had been on two weeks of the school holidays i would have been in seventh heaven Mm. i reckon uh it wasn't until that came out on um VHS that I actually saw that but it's just my luck that I see this story twice and look I think I've said this recently maybe I felt difficult that uh, I'm judging it as a nine-year-old and being bored because it doesn't have monsters in it um, which most of that sort of Troughton era is known for um, and I think that perhaps I'm judging it harshly based on a nine-year-old wanting Daleks and Cybermen and Ice Warriors and whatever weed creatures um to be appearing it may be that if it was so you know it so happened to be found by anybody uh the wigan wonder maybe no 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 no, no. the indiana jones of wigan mike <laughs> sorry 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 yes the, the, no the most famous thing to come out of wigan since the verb <laughs> anyway, um... and it was a bittersweet symphony <clears throat> yeah, yeah yes yes and he's such a lucky yeah, man the drugs don't work still it may be that it is actually quite good and it's nice. It's a good character piece. Um, 
It has, uh, what's his name from Monster of Peladon? Uh, Donald G, who's never one of my favourite actors, so it's a bit hard to judge whether that's any good because he's in it. Part of me would actually like to see it as an adult and think, well, maybe I've been a bit harsh on this or maybe it was right. Maybe my nine-year-old self was correct. It is a, is a boring load of tosh. <laughs> but Is that Donald Tosh? Tosh, yes. It could go either two ways, Mike, because if they found it right, because you've got the existing episode now, Mm. and like Enemy of the World, where we only had that existing episode, we all thought it was boring as bugger. We did. But when we had it in the context of those six episodes, it was fantastic, the whole thing. Mm. And it might be the same as Space Pirates if you get everything else. It could be. But even if they animate it, probably might still be an improvement on the original production. It might be. Maybe they should just cut it down to maybe 40 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I may be judging it too harshly um, without seeing it. And look, for any of us, I haven't seen it for 47 years and you've never seen it. So, you know, it's like new Doctor Who and something Doctor Who that we haven't seen that we actually get excited about would be a good thing, I think. I'd be disappointed if it was the only thing that came back. Um, But um, you never know. It could be be fantastic. Milo Clancy sort of... I've always thought was sort of like season six's version of Evans, sort of an annoying character who is there just to annoy us all. Um, I don't think he's quite as bad as Evans, but at times makes Webb pretty hard to watch. Um, But it'd be nice if we had the opportunity. That's all, I think. With these um, repeats on the school holidays, now were they Mm -hmm. uh, just showed one episode a day or were they two episodes? It was one episode a day. So they used to run Monday to Friday, so you'd have two weeks school holidays. Christmas ones, they didn't have them in December. Uh, they used to have them in usually in January. Sometimes they also had uh, originals uh, on a Friday night running at that time. Sometimes on a Friday, you'd get two episodes. You'd get one in the in the afternoon, which would be a repeat, and then you get a first run Pertwee or something in the afternoon. So they had no issue with that out-of-doctor repeats like the BBC did? When they purchased them, they purchased them for two uh, one showing and one repeat. It seemed to vary greatly. Like um, Space Pirates was the last Troughton episodes ever shown in Australia, uh, and they were in Melbourne. That was May 1973. Uh, so that was at least two years after it was shown originally, uh, the first time it was shown in Melbourne. And they used to move them around. I think at that time they may have been going back to not many prints, because you can see from the broadcast that there's big gaps in between. But the Melbourne ones, Melbourne always had some sort of strange things going on with their uh, sort of broadcasts. There were were huge gaps. There was a gap in the early days, which no one else had, which was the seven episodes of Marco Polo, which is unexplained why Melbourne had a gap. Um, And these sort of things. And Melbourne was the last place to show Evil of the Daleks, so... In Australia. In Australia. Eat in Adelaide at the same time. Yeah, it was certainly the last place to show Space Pirates, and that was the only one they showed that school holidays. They didn't show another, a four-parter, because um, usually they'd stick a six and four-parter for uh, the two weeks of the school holidays. Mm. But I, I'm not sure when it ended. I think I remember them showing Pertwee's uh, in the afternoons and school holidays, but it, by the mid-70s, I think when... Uh, Doctor Who was sort of like Tom Baker had started and it was on after the goodies. I think that those um, 
repeats may have ended sometime around then because I don't recall seeing them after Tom Baker was shown here. And you kept watching the show regularly during the uh, the 70s? and Yeah, well, we moved around a lot because uh, my father loved moving around to places. So we ended up moving to a godforsaken place in northwest Western Australia called Port Hedland, oh. which was interesting later. But I remember being there and that was where I actually saw the first two episodes of Time Warrior um, because I must have missed when they were first shown in Melbourne, which was 75, I think, just after we went to colour. Uh, I don't recall seeing them, but I recall seeing it in Port Hedland and also the other stories from that uh, uh, season, like Death to the Daleks, not Invasion of Dinosaurs, of course, and Monster of Peladon, Planet of the Spiders. Uh, they were on a, a Sunday night before Countdown, and that was a repeat session in from Perth. So we were getting a, the feed from Perth at that time. Uh, and that was the only channel was the ABC, so you really had no choice but to watch <laughs> what was on. Um, and we didn't have a TV uh, at the time because we were staying in a sort of the uh, airline company. My father worked for the airlines. Um, the airline company had a, uh, a block of flats and we were staying there. And there was a guy, a young guy there, who was an apprentice engineer, and he had a TV. And he and I used to watch Doctor Who all the time on Sunday afternoons. So, yeah. And I remember that clearly. And I remember that those were... Um, like those that last season of Pertwee. I remember being excited uh, when I was at university. Remember that uh, they had a year off of Doctor Who? Oh, yes. Uh, around the early 80s. That's when Anthony Howe, Anthony Howe came to prominence. Isn't that right, Mark? Yes, he did. If Dallas Jones is listening to this, he'll know exactly on who we speak. Anyway, so, yeah, they had a year off, and then I was at university, and there was uh, one of the things was uh, about Peter Davison starting. He said, with Davison is the return of the Cybermen. And I remember getting really excited about that, because that was, of course, Earthshock. So it had been shown in the UK. Uh, There's no internet in those days, but obviously there was correspondence between people. So I, I looked forward to that and then you know, watching Davison. It was until the end of the 80s when Doctor Who got a bit uh, not very well treated by the ABC when they sort of shunted it on the afternoon show. Um, that's when I sort of, I was working, so I never actually got home in time to watch it. Um, so I, it wasn't so much losing interest, it was being unable to watch it because of when they programmed it. 6.30 was the perfect time slot for yes. it, where you had people coming home from work and kids already home from school, where just shunting it that mm. extra hour, it's really locking it into a kid's. Yeah. We've all seen the demographic of the program has been uh, adults and kids. Yes, I think that they were, at the time the ABC were being, uh, they were less than impressed with the program and they were thinking about dropping it, so they weren't treating it very well. Was that David Hill? Yeah, David Hill, but he was the one who had the epic repeat um, session in the mid-80s when they showed stuff like uh, the Mind of Evil, which is the first time, in black and white, of course, which is the only time I ever saw that on TV, and... Uh, I think Inferno at that time as well. Stories they'd never shown before. Ambassadors of Death. Uh, Planet of the Daleks, which I hadn't seen since I'd come back from the UK and I'd never seen in colour. Um, he he did those epic repeats, and maybe after that, though, there was a bit, I think, Trial of a Time Lord, sort of, there was a lot of interest was lost, and they thought it was going to get axed and stuff like that. And I guess that the ABC weren't so um, happy about the program. They sort of, yeah, they didn't treat it very well, and a lot of fans who worked at the time, couldn't actually see it. And then it was all over, Red Rover. Yeah. Uh, how did you fill the void? I mean, you obviously watch other other TV programs as well, but that would be some of your favourite shows, apart from Doctor Who you used to watch. Yeah, I've always liked the, been a big fan of the Jerry Anderson stuff, and look, I could always watch mm. the Thunderbirds because it was on every Saturday morning at six. Is it still on? Probably. This was probably about the time that I 
was watching stuff late at night where they used to have the uh, the Avengers with uh, poor old um, Dinah Rigg. Uh, they always showed those colour ones. And Danger Man, um, those sort of things that were on because I was studying and things, you know, earlier on when I was studying, these were shows that I'd watch uh, in the middle of the night when I'd be up trying to sort of study for an exam. Uh, and, you know, things like that. Uh, I also, this was round about the time that I started uh, finding out about the um, the videos, the VHSs. I'd sort of ignored them completely for most of my time. It wasn't until, you remember when Tomb of the Cybermen got um, found and released? Yes, we do. And I, I, was, work, I, was, I was working overtime in, uh, this is when I was at the archives, we had a, a reading room in the, uh, uh, in the city in uh, Little Burke Street, it was next door to Meyer, and I remember going on a break and coming out and Meyer's window was just full of Tomb of the Cybermen, I went, oh, God, great. So, and I bought it, and that was the first one I ever bought, and then I sort of started buying the uh, VHSs that were around, uh, that I could buy also buying them secondhand from uh, mainly Dixon's in Camberwell, great place in the old days. And it, it, and then you just sort of um, build up your my collection from there and I get, start to get to watch sort of older stuff that I'd never seen before. So it sort of kept me going uh, through the 90s at least, I think. There was a, a, a display in the Mile Windows in Burke Street with Term of the Cybermen VHSs. Yeah. Just for our non-Melbourne... Uh, listeners, Myers is a big department store that's been in in Melbourne for well, close to a century now. They're, they're, it's on its last legs, but um, yeah. it, it 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 occupies most of a block, uh, yeah. and um, it, quite popular b- back in the day. Less so these days, but as Mark is intimating, uh, for it to devote an entire window to a dead doctor, a dead science fiction program. Um, Admittedly, the story had been just recently found. It's quite amazing. Yeah, when that sort of that doesn't exist anymore because, of course, they jammed them into two things now, and it's now import what is now in the Emporium Shopping Centre. Yeah. So I was in the that, that window there, and it was just a small window, but there was enough of them sort of piled up there. It's the first and only time I think I've ever bought a Doctor Who thing from Maya. Uh, I just went straight in and bought it. Went, hi, oh, how much is this? I don't care. I'm buying this because, of course, I have. <laughs> I think it was twenty nine ninety five. I think it was. Probably yeah. was. But you're working overtime anyway, Mike. So it didn't really matter. Yes, yes. It made made that uh, overtime quite good. The first thing I did was go home and watch the thing. Did watching Troughton from that era bring back memories of watching the show from that era, uh, Mike? I, I must confess, not really. Um, seeing the Cybermen did a bit because they were, um, but they were different from the Wheel in Space Cybermen. Um, and I remember that um, it's just that I'd, I'd I'd had this sort of you sort of get your mind's eye about something about how Troughton would perform based on the books really, and so you'd read the books and you'd think oh this is how it's going to go and then you'd watch it and go oh yeah it's not quite as good as I thought it would be it's a bit <laughs> like um, the end of uh, Wheel in Space because I remember that as well you know the bit where they're they're doing the um, spacewalk. Yes. Uh, yeah, I remember that clearly as being fantastic, and then when I saw it, I went, "Oh, okay, it's not quite, it's not quite as good as I remember when I was a kid." So the memory cheated, did it, Mike? Well, no. When I was a kid, I thought it was sort of you know these these spacewalking sort of uh, Cybermen, and then they're trying to get the the whole door open. That's the bit that I remember, and then them shooting off into space. But it's not quite as uh, uh, the special effects aren't quite as good as. Uh, you probably think when you're a child, when you're probably impressed by, you know, any old thing, really. That's why Peter Capaldi won't rewatch The Web Planet. He's worried that if he watches it again, that the impression he had in his mind of the story 
will be um, slightly tainted <laughs> by by watching it. So he likes to have the memory of the, of the web planet as he remembers it and will not go back and watch it again, which is probably a good thing. Wise man. And a great doctor. Mike, during this conversation, uh, one thing that struck me is you know your dates in terms of uh, Melbourne transmissions and things like that. Um, how come you're so well-versed in this uh, research? Well, Mark, when the rumours started up in 2013 about uh, stuff being found, um, Web, Enemy and perhaps Marco, and then we got Web and Enemy, and after that there was a lot of other rumours, um, and there wasn't a lot of information forthcoming. Being a curious person, uh, I sort of got a bit bored with trying to wait for someone to say something definitive so I thought might as well start having a look around and see what I could find out uh, about certain things. Uh, a bit hamstrung being in Melbourne doesn't help I'm not in the UK and also for Australian stuff I'm not in Sydney but you know, we, we do our best as we can. Broadcast John Preddle's site which is an invaluable resource so it certainly gives the, the dates for um, Melbourne broadcasts and all the other broadcasts in, in Australia and it sort of made me remember certain things and I thought oh yeah I remember that I remember that date I remember that date so it gives me an idea I've always been fairly good at dates anyway and all of this and sort of discussions with various people has sort of led me on to try all sorts of other different things to sort of work out information about what could or could not be um, true particularly with regards to some of the rumours that were going around um, I think that there are a lot of rumours going around, as we all know, um, some of which had some plausibility and others which pretty ropey. You start doing some research and see if you can actually find out whether any of these could possibly be true. Um, possibly one of the main ones that I recall was there was uh, uh, a rumour of shows other than Doctor Who and there was a list of programmes. Uh, and it struck me that whoever did it, if it was a sort of... Uh, a sort of hoax type thing they'd actually done some research to actually work out whether it was true or not they you know there was no avengers which the first season was never well hardly ever tele recorded apparently certainly wasn't sold overseas and there are all these obscure programs and it got to, i started thinking well perhaps these programs um were it's, is it possible that these could have been found in uh, other countries because of the, as you recall, the uh, the Commonwealth quota. Australia paid quite a hefty price for some of these programs and mm. that made it more affordable for other Commonwealth countries like Nigeria uh, and Sierra Leone being two main ones in this case. So I thought, well, I started looking online, some, there's some newspapers online, they're a bit rough and ready, uh, about programs, BBC programs initially, but also um, uh, ITV programs that had been broadcast in Australia. So you can say, okay, these were shown here, therefore there's a possibility that they may exist elsewhere. And then you go back and start looking. Uh, where it falls down, and this is still a work in progress, is a program called Adam Adamant Lives, which is uh, most of the second series is missing, and it's a bit of an Avengers knockoff, really. It was mentioned as the whole second series had been found, and I thought, well, I don't know whether this was broadcast here. I've still not found any evidence that it's ever been shown here. I found some entry somewhere where someone was saying it was shown in 1969. It wasn't shown on the ABC, I don't think. Uh, they had the Avengers anyway, so why would they want a BBC version. Uh, it's possible that it was sold to one of the commercial networks because the commercial networks did buy stuff. Um, Channel 7 bought Morecambe and Wise and 
basil brush, which was later shown uh, in other countries, so therefore they must have covered the costs for the other Commonwealth countries with that purchase. I still haven't found any uh, proof. Um, unfortunately, 1969 is one of the years when the uh, online versions of the newspapers are a bit rubbish. So I, I find it hard to find anything. Um, and it could be that it was one of those programs that the commercial networks could have bought. Uh, and then shown in the regions. I used to show in the 70s at least you go to regions. I remember, uh, and I can't remember the program, but it was a program that's vague cult program that's shown in Townsville. But no, it wasn't shown in the in the main cities. So it's always possible that uh, Adam Adamant was purchased by a Channel 7 and shown in somewhere like Newcastle. Uh, it's just proving it. So I can't definitively say that is not correct. Uh, but I still can't find any uh, proof that that program was ever shown here. Same with Ace of Wands. It's another program I've not found any evidence that it was broadcast in Australia. Have you found anybody who thinks they have recollections of seeing it here? Or? No. found an online entry, somebody saying that Adam Adamant Lives was shown. The first season was shown in 68, the second season was shown in 69. Uh, but I can't find any evidence uh, that it was shown on any, well, not Melbourne anyway, or Sydney. Um so it's possible that it was maybe shown in the regions. Who knows? It's it's hard to tell. Yeah, this is the type of things that you do. And I've got a whole long list of a book here full of programs that, yes, they were shown here. So therefore, they could end up being one of those things that are um, found in uh, Nigeria. Uh, some of them are shows that you go, okay, I've never heard of this and I probably never will again. Um, and some of them are programs that you have heard of and think, well, they do have missing episodes and it'd be really nice if some of them would come back. Um, but, yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's one part of the... Part of the uh, I was hoping to go to Sydney um, in June and uh, spend a couple of days going through stuff at uh, National Archives and also uh, at the Mitchell Library. But yeah, that uh, yeah, fell through. Sydney isn't within five kilometres of your place, Mike, or? No, sadly not. Um, <laughs> I don't think I'd get across the border if they said, what are you doing? I said, oh, look, I'm trying to find out, you know, uh, uh, research some stuff about Doctor Who. I'm sure <laughs> the coppers go, yeah, like, on you go. Just with researching on, because you're looking at transmission dates and stuff like that, aren't you, Mike? Yeah, the other thing is, um, was about the, uh, which of course, um, you gentlemen have been involved with this as well, was the about the whether there was multiple prints or not. Certainly, there's no evidence to suggest there was multiple prints for the first, uh, up until the end of the Romans. Uh, it seems that there was only one print based on the fact that it took forever for everybody to show it. And that was the film print being shown in one location and then physically transported to another capital city, is that right? Well, it seems that they showed the whole episode and then sent the whole episode to the next place. Uh, you also had regional places involved at this stage too, like um, uh, Townsville, Rockhampton were one. Later, Kalgoorlie, I'm not sure whether they got their things from Perth or not. But certainly Townsville and Rockhampton in the early days did not get their um, transmissions from Brisbane. So what you're saying there then is they would be the, the, the relevant episodes would be physically shipped to a particular location, screened, and then moved on to another one. Is that right? So they wouldn't send each episode on, I guess, in case they got misplaced and it'd be very hard to get another copy. So what they would do is they would show, say, Marco Polo, they would show all seven episodes, and then they gather them up and send them on to the next um, place of broadcast, and then so on and so on. At that early stage, broadcast technology wasn't such that if you broadcast, say, Marco Polo in Brisbane, 
it, the transmissions would reach the outer regions of, of Queensland. It would have to be physically shipped to, say, Rockhampton or Townsville. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And the same with if it was shown in Perth, it would have to go out to Kalgoorlie, which is further east along the coast. Is that right? I'm not sure about Kalgoorlie, but definitely uh, Rockhampton and Townsville had separate sort of um, broadcasts of, uh, of actual sort of Doctor Who episodes. When that stopped, I don't know. And within, say, Victoria, was, was Melbourne the only play, uh, only transmission location? There were, you know... Yes. Okay, and, and so a smaller state like Victoria or Tasmania would have one, you know, the capital city would be the broadcast location. Yes. Okay. Also, New South Wales, like Canberra and Sydney, would have the same broadcast. Okay. Because I've, I used to fantasise that when I drive up to my hometown of Mildura, which is almost 600 kilometres away from Melbourne, there's a... There's a massive uh, broadcast tower about <laughs> half an hour from Mildura, which I'm not quite sure what it is. I'm assuming it, it's to boost the signal uh, all the way up. Yes. There's one tiny red brick building that it's attached to. I thought, no, I don't think it's jam- you know, jam-packed with videotapes and film prints. But okay, well, that's fair enough. Some of the other things, uh, initially they showed Doctor Who once... Um uh, once a week. Uh, I think it was initially it was a Monday night. I think in Melbourne, uh, 7:30. Uh, later they decided that they would only repeat the um, historicals during school holidays. That was up until I think um, series three. Then series three they just repeated everything. Uh, halfway through series three, I think it was about 1967, they decided that they were going to show Doctor Who not once a week but four nights a week. So they showed. Uh, stories sort of out of order in different places from 1966 uh, to 67. So Perth started off, uh, they started with the time meddler. So it was basically uh, Space Museum to the gunfighters. Uh, they were shown in various different places, uh, some of them at the same time. So the same episodes were shown at the same time uh, in different states and different um, uh, time zones. Uh, at that stage, they didn't use video a lot because it was very expensive. And that uh, Project Australia, where everything was linked up, hadn't started yet. That was July 1970. So when you say linked up, what do you mean by that, Mike? What was Project Australia? A pro- Project Australia was to link the East Coast with the West Coast, basically. So to be able to broadcast television uh, across the nation in one go? Well, yeah, I used to use it for live events, though, mainly cricket. That's why uh, the first uh, ever test in Perth was in 1970 because they could actually broadcast it and show it in the eastern states. Um, there was no Perth test before then. That's how that sort of worked. Um, and yeah, some of these, those sort of multiple sort of entries of things that were shown at the same time, usually two places would show the same Doctor Who episode, like Adelaide and Melbourne or Perth and somebody else. And yeah, there's time difference, not as much as it was, uh, would have been now in summer. But because uh, there was no daylight saving, but Perth was still two hours away from from Sydney, for instance. So, so is it is it true to say then, Mike, that with Project Australia, the possibility that there were multiple prints floating around uh, basically died, dies away? It's all just you know you can transmit it around the country to the capital cities. They start moving to videotape, of course, with the colour, so that sort of really sort of disappears. Then I re- I remember when I was in. Port Hedland, we saw stuff at the same time, like Countdown was on at six o'clock at night. It was two hours behind when it was actually shown in Melbourne, um, but it was the same time as Perth. Uh, so it's the time difference thing sort of indicates that, that you know, the, the chances of showing things in different time zones makes it different, like Hobart, Adelaide, Perth, if they were all at the same time, and this was what came later, 
Um, but these were broadcast four nights a week. So they weren't moving prints around that quickly for four nights a week. So they would have had to have had at least two prints. They showed them out of order. Perth and Adelaide both got, uh, in that run, they both got Time Meddler first at the, at the same time, uh, running for the first four nights from the 10th of October to the 13th. So they're, what, an hour and a half time difference? And we're talking about 1966 here. So the chances of them having all of these things sort of available, like they, being able to videotape and then show in Perth um, an hour and a half later is probably a bit unlikely. It's easier to have prints and then they sort of move the prints around so they have a dub, a, a, at least two prints to be able to sort of um, broadcast in different places uh, just so that everything was sort of sort of in some sort of real order. From your research then what, I mean this is all academic obviously because a lot of this it is, it is academic. return back to the UK in, in 75 but just for the, the sake of the exercise what stories then based on your research do you believe had uh, multiple prints floating around the country just, just to be able to you know facilitate those broadcasts in different locations? Well I would say that for these, the that run from Space Museum to the gunfighters, there are at least two prints um, for the ones that were shown at the same time and then moved around. Uh, so you've got at least two prints uh, because you're running four nights a week. So it's not like it's weekly where you can sort of condense it and show it and then move it along. So it's obvious that they had at least two prints, maybe three, to sort of run around uh, each of the capital cities to facilitate a four night a week broadcast. The videotape would have been quite expensive to do that and unless they videotaped it all and then sent it around as well. Um, it seems unlikely. It's cheaper to do the film prints. So You believe that from the BBC prints that were sold to the to Australia, the ABC struck copies and used those, and it was film copies that were floating around? Well, yeah, either that or they got the BBC to supply them with two copies. They started showing them in four different places at the same time, and you had Perth, Adelaide, Hobart and Brisbane. Looking at uh, at that stage, three different time zones, so Adelaide and Perth, at, uh, Hobart and Brisbane were two different, um, were the same time zone, but they're miles apart. Brisbane dropped out uh, because I think they must have had something on and they missed an episode, and then it became it was four or three, at least three, prints probably to cover those different time zones at that different time. It's interesting though because like the, the prints that were sent back in 75 there's like 150 film prints is that yeah. right? That went back. Could there have been duplicate ABC prints in that batch that was sent back or was that batch all the old BBC prints? It's, it's hard to tell. Um, it, look it could be the the, the original copy, uh, the ma whatever they call the master copy or the master viewing print or whatever because they also had the copy oh. that they sent to the censorship board essentially you know when they ran into trouble with um dalek master plan so that would probably have become the first print and then they would also strike strike other prints that would have to be cut in the same way like there is evidence that a, uh, several prints have turned up from other places wasn't there too or the chase wasn't it that they found two prints one they, they found a print here and it also had been sent back to uh the uk uh, we don't know whether they were making copies or stuff and we know that they did make copies later on for the mining companies it's one of those intriguing things without sort of you know trying to find some information within the abc records that actually gives you some idea about what they may have done um, if they had have had one print zooming around the whole country it's really hard to keep track of when you've got something you know in four different time zones how much they used videotape or not is hard to tell um, 
it was expensive, whether it's it's cheaper to do film prints. There's been anecdotal evidence that more than just uh, a, a whole lot of Doctor Who stuff was destroyed. Um, the bandsaw, uh, including stuff that's gone back and other stuff that hasn't. Um, so it's it's without sort of it's the type of thing that you'd like to find so sort of holy grail of information about the ABC. How did the ABC operate at this time? So Mike, for your research, have you been primarily using uh, newspaper television listings or have you you know tried to uh, contact the ABC for instance or is there an archival service a national archival service in Australia that's assisted you well, you know what have you used and what would you like to be able to access to sort of you know uncover some more mysteries I have been sort of uh, looking at uh, promising series at national archives relating to the ABC that could possibly be of interest sort of thinking outside the box a little bit. So this is material that the ABC generated themselves no longer retain because of, I suppose, space, but because of its historical interest of sent off to the National Archives of Australia. Is that right? Yeah, in Sydney. It's always in bloody Sydney. Why can't any of this stuff be in Melbourne? Because that's where the ABC's The capital was here for 27 (laughs) years, for Christ's sake. This is the problem. Looked at these things and slowly but surely uh, been contacting National Archives to get some of these. uh, They have no access on them requesting them to be opened which was going fine until recently when it took them what three months to actually get back to me they actually put up that it was open three months before they actually told me and you know the cost of photocopying is quite astronomical for some of them so it's actually more sort of cost effective to actually fly up there and in a day or for, for, for a week and come back than the cost of the copy of one file of which one page may be of some interest to you. So how does it actually work then, Mike? If you, you approach them and you say, look, currently a lot of this is just in boxes and it's not been digitised or anything like that, is that right? No. So explain to, to us then how you would, A, know what to find and then B, request that it be made available. You have a look at the description. You see if it's anything and the date range. And the date ranges are, can be a bit ropey. Um you have a look at the date ranges, what what it may be, uh, and you think, okay, this might be interesting. So you then have a look and see that it's got no access. So then you have to apply for them to give you access. And this information is available in its sort of raw form uh, on the internet in terms of date ranges and, and subject matter. It's not always useful, uh, and it's not always as descriptive as it can be or it should be. Um, but there's a whole lot of stuff there that you can find information that um, is... Is a value, and you just go by things that you might think is of some interest. So, rather than getting photocopies, um, you say, "Okay, I'll get all of these series." I go for two days into National Archives at uh, Chester Hills and say, "I want to look at all of these," and they give me the boxes. I go through them. You take pictures of whatever you want that's of value. If there's, I'm sure that they allow you to do that these days. And then everything's fine. Uh, you can go through it fairly quickly. And you can go, no, that's no good, that's no good, that's no good, rather than spending $200 on a photocopy and find out it's not of any value at all. That's your ideal situation then, isn't it? Being able to fly up. Do you have to be someone who's interested, you know, works in that field? Or can you be a, a, an, an amateur with, you know, a great deal of interest in it? Or who do they, who do they let through the doors? They're not the BBC, so... You don't have to be writing a book. Uh, if it's 
closed access or there's or they refuse access or whatever uh, you may have to provide more information like you are writing a book or whatever um, but generally if it's on open access you can anybody can order it and have a look so fly up book yourself in there and just start you know asking for the, them to start bringing stuff up from the bowels you order it in advance generally how archival sort of places work you've purchased or purchased or arranged for stuff to be photocopied and made available to you have you found anything that's of interest not so much me i i facilitated the open access but someone else purchased the copies for the uh the mining companies what was that all about and what have you what did you help uncover or discover this was um a uh, a, a foreign person a, a person called robert who's handles trebor who you may know is on um gallifrey base a, a lot and planet mondas he sort of uh, we correspond on various things. He's very good at searching and finding weird and wonderful things on the internet. And he found um, the report about the fact that uh, for the mining companies in the late 60s, the government decided that they were going to record um, ABC programs and give it to them to watch as part of expanding television in, in remote areas. And this is in remote areas of Australia, of course. Yes. So these are places that had mining. So there were three centres where they copied. There was Perth, which was the main one, which were various uh, Hammersley Iron and a few other um, iron ore companies. That's in northwest Australia, isn't it? Uh, Headland, Port Hedland and Hammersley. It's near Port Hedland. Mount Tom Price... Parabadoo, those sort of places. There was uh, Adelaide for Groot Island, and there was um, Townsville, which did recordings for the Bauxite uh, mine, which was at Weeper in uh, on the Gulf of Carpentaria in Queensland. So they recorded those basically from about four o'clock until eight or nine o'clock, I think it was. They cut out the news because the news, by the time they got it, it wasn't relevant, and they used to fly them up to the areas. Uh, so there's five files relating to mining companies. The first file is about the setup and all of that sort of thing, which was the first one that uh, Robert got the copy of, uh, which showed that they, with the idea being what happened to the, the tapes. Uh, there's a large cost involved, so it's not sure whether how much of it was subsidised by the mining companies, by the way. I'm sure the mining companies were getting the government to pay for it, Mike. I'm sure they probably were. <laughs> anyway. And, and, and sorry, when was this occurring? Was this in the early 70s or the late 60s? Early 70s until the late 70s, I think. Certainly when I was there uh, in Port Hedland, which was 77, I know for a fact that we used to get um, the school used to, we used to have a film night on Friday nights, which the print was supplied by Mount Goldsworthy Mining Company. They used to get films, they used to have cinemas and stuff like that, and they also got this TV so they could show it. And uh, yeah, so no Doctor Who, uh, none of those afternoon um, uh, recordings, I'm afraid, which were there, but they started after that. They probably would have started with Adventure Island, I think that was on at four o'clock. Um, and then Gradually, uh, I think <laughs> it's funny, the only Doctor Who that could have possibly have been recorded as part of this that's missing is, of course, that are the Space Pirates. Uh, <laughs> again! <laughs> again, it's, it all comes back to the Space Pirates. But there's other stuff like uh, Missing Callan uh, and things like that that was broadcast later. Uh, so they received, they, gradually it was increased in time. So it became a whole day eventually. Uh, so they used to receive these on a weekly basis. They'd show them and then they'd return the um, the uh, tapes to, uh, in this case, well, I'll use the West Australian one because it's the one I know better, to Perth, where they'd be uh, probably reused for other things. It doesn't mean that there's not recording that happened 
elsewhere. Yeah, the mining thing was interesting. I think a lot of people saw it as something really uh, exciting. Uh, it's certainly an interesting part of Australian history. Um, I was certainly interested in it because it's like it's in an area that I knew quite well at a time when I was there. And it's like, yeah. oh, okay, this is really good. But from a Doctor Who perspective, not really. Uh, and also it has to be that, you know, someone has to take some of the tapes and not return them, which... Yeah, you know, it's possible, but they still have to survive in you know, 50 years. Uh, it seems highly unlikely. But, but it's tantalising, isn't it, the idea that... It, but yeah. it's, it's an interesting thing that we know. You learn things about what's happened. Like, um, recently, um, you know, have there's been lots of discussions about bond stores and stuff like that. And quite accidentally, I found out some information about bond stores uh, through... Uh, an unlikely source I was looking for. There's a Australian website called Refuse Classification, which goes in about censorship. Um, and I was looking for a... a I went mad um, in lockdown uh, when Arrow, Arrow Video had their sale on. I bought a whole lot of films, and then I thought... Oh, I was looking at some of these. A lot of them were the Italian sort of giallo, sort of those sort of uh, nasty sort of 70s uh, thrillers. And... Uh, I was looking at a particular film by one of the director. I had an Australian version of Blu-ray, and I was wondering whether it was still censored. I couldn't really find out about that, but I was sort of looking, and I found uh, a film that I'd bought that had run into censorship problems, surprisingly, since it's not really that bad, called The, uh, the Iguana with Tongue of Fire. Uh, so it's, you, you never forget the name of that one. So I was looking at that, <laughs> and then... Is it, is it any good, Mike? That's okay. It's not a good one. There's some good ones, but it's it's okay. Um, it's not that bad, and I couldn't work out. And some of the films, why they ran into trouble is a bit odd. And then I was reading, sort of flicking through the entries, and I came across this film called Love Camp 7, which ran into real um, censorship problems. It's not a porno film, surprisingly. It's a film about... Um, it's a Nazi exploitation film. I'm surprised there was a market for that sort of thing. Yeah, well, <laughs> Grindhouse, Grindhouse, Rob. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, you, you know those those cinemas that used to be in Swanston Street? <laughs> oh, yes, walk past them. <laughs> yeah, and, and anyway. Only, only walk past them, of course. Yeah, of course, you can't miss them. Uh, anyway, there was um, an entry at the end which was about the censorship problems and how this would have been dealt, which was an interview with the chief censor from... Um, a very illustrious Australian publication called Cinema Papers, um, which used to exist, uh, I remember reading it at university. It was very, I think David Stratton was an editor there, I think. And this particular issue was from which year? 1974. So we're, we're talking about the years that we're in, in, of interest here, but this was about film, and, and, and it's basically a little bit, and he mentions the Bond store, meaning that uh, so the distributors would uh, send the film to the censorship board who would then make their decision um, if the distributor was happy with what they said or whatever or they cut made the cuts or whatever they would then pay the money to get the film out of bond which means they pay the excise so the bond means it's sitting there waiting for them to pay basically the um, tax to bring, bring the print into country into the country so this would be for all tv and film it sort of segued a bit in the 70s and it became more uh, I think they got too busy and they started getting uh, places like the ABC to do their own censorship, which is why Caves of Androzani is just looks like it's been butchered. Hacked. It's really mm. bad. Some of the other ones aren't quite so bad. Uh, so, yeah, and you just find these things accidentally. So it's, it's, it's interesting that 
you know, it's always what I said to people when they were doing research is, you know, stop it and do something else and you'll find something that will lead you straight down the path again. And, you know, I've taken my own advice and it actually does work. Uh, so it's interesting. So you work out something about the Bond store. Um, so that's how it worked. It was in Bond until such time as they actually um, took it out and paid the excise on it. And then it was allowed into the country after it had probably been hacked to bits. And this is of interest, of course, because of what what happened to Dalek's master plan when it came to Australia. It was, it was brought in in 67, I think, and then the censors had a look at it and... Uh, if the you know for the for the ABC the ABC decided that if we were to accommodate those cuts that you know it would be basically unbroadcastable, yeah. So it was never screened, and then whatever happened to Dalek's master plan resides in its fate in this so in this Bond store. Is that correct? Well, it depends. Yeah, it's um it's it's television. It's not films, but at the time they were both uh, dealt with at the same time. So you would have broadcast stuff, so they would look at it and they'd make cuts. They made cuts to shows that were on late at night. Uh, things like Out of Out of the Unknown were cut, even though they were rated adults only and shown at 9.30 at night. So it's all pretty, um, as we know, uh, censorship in Australia, particularly in the uh, late 60s, was a bit strict, very, very strict. I was going to say nanny state, really, isn't it? Well, it was. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't until, you know, the R certificate was brought in that things sort of... Loosened up, yes. So to speak. Mm. It's amazing that you go from that time period where they showed, you know, they wouldn't show Dalek Master Plan, um, butchered it beyond recognition, it would be unbroadcastable to, what was it, 74, and they had number 96 with all what was going on there, and it's just like, it's just like a... Yes, they, they went from nothing to everything <laughs> almost overnight. It's kind of bizarre. There was a change of regime in the late sixties, and I think yes. uh, the, the, I can't remember his, his name, but the fellow who was a Liberal uh, Attorney General who then became the leader of the Democrats, Don Chip. Don Chip, that's right. I think I think he led the charge in, in sort yes. of liberalising uh, the censorship rules in this country. So mm. um, perhaps if he'd uh, he'd been in harness, you know, five or six years earlier, maybe more of uh, Dalek's master. Well, they probably would have screened Dalek's master plan for starters. So probably, yeah. But who knows? Uh, so, but you find out these this information like by accident. Um, and it's it's always useful that you think oh, I'm looking for something else. So here's me looking for whether the print, the the copy of a Blu-ray I've bought has still been cut, and mm. I find something else which I didn't intend to find just because I found uh, a mention of a film that uh, I'd actually purchased. Because mention of the Bond store has been sort of apocryphal for a, a long time, and the, yes, I mean there are, I think we're relying on an interview or interviews with. Uh, uh, I won't. I won't name 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 that person because I don't think it's fair to sort of name him. But um, that 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 say Dalek's master plan may have existed as as recently as 1985, which is not very recent at all. But you, you sort of, as you say, happenstance takes you in another direction, and and you fall upon a reference to the Bond store from you know the chief censor at the time back in 1974. Yeah, well, this would be a film Bond store. Uh, the Bond store that the ABC had, uh, which they ran, was for the BBC or BBC Sydney. Oh, okay. So that would probably allow stuff to come in there to be sent out to places like New Zealand or Hong Kong or Singapore if they weren't the same prints. Um, so they'd be sort of sent over from the UK, I think, and um, packed up and then sent off. Uh, they wouldn't go directly to... I don't think they did anyway. It's hard to tell that BBC Sydney's a big mystery uh, about what they did. But I would guess that if the ABC ran it, then you have stuff in Bond waiting to go out to other countries. 
BBC Sydney would over they they would certainly organise the sales. How much involvement they had with the distribution, I don't know. And all of this era, and they're all countries that are of interest to us. Uh, from a missing episodes perspective, you know, your Hong Kongs, your Singapores, even New Zealand. If you wanted to know what was distributed, you, you you'd sort of need to delve into paperwork associated with BBC Sydney. Would that be right? I would imagine that that's probably at Caversham. I... But if the ABC was involved, would would it not be held by the ABC and then sort of transferred to the? Well, the, well, the ABC probably provided the site. How much they ran it, I guess ran meaning, uh, I don't know whether their staff were involved. Uh, they may have been. Um, this is the type of thing that, yes, it's the type of thing that you sort of try and find uh, information in uh, little snippets in minutes or something like that. They're the type of things that you sometimes find information like that. Uh, they certainly stopped at around 85. Um, it was at Gore Hill, and Gore Hill itself closed in 2003. They maybe just used bond stores uh, by the docks or the airport, the usual sp- spots where these are mike before we wind things up uh, as part of your research and i remember you posting about this on planet mondas a plug for planet mondas um you're pre- <laughs> uh, and it is it's not it's not australia but it is uh, gibraltar um a uh, far-flung uh, from in australian terms uh is it, i think it's still a dependency of the united kingdom yes uh, yes what, it is what did, I you, think, what, yeah. what did you learn uh, what did you learn about gibraltar in regards to doctor who i asked a question about gibraltar uh, i was looking at some of the broadcast things and they seem to sort of fit that when gibraltar um, broadcast episodes and i sort of asked on planet mondas which richard uh, Molesworth answered saying oh they probably had duplicate prints or they probably had this and they probably had that so it wouldn't have and i said well was it possible because I, I think I asked him straight out whether um, there was any evidence on the web or enemy prints that they'd been to Gibraltar um, because I had a f- inkling that I thought that, that they possibly could have gone through there. What was that important, Mike? Uh, well, I think that you have a look at the times that things were broadcast and that Singapore was some kind of hub that was sending stuff out. We knew it had sent some stuff to Nigeria, but also it's like, okay, I can see that there's a gap. For, did they go directly from Singapore to Nigeria or did they go somewhere else? Now, as it turns out, they did go to Gibraltar. Um, and that Phil Morris first mentioned Gibraltar and Zambia, which also fits for certain episodes too, by the way. Um, and then that was later uh, confirmed by Paul Vanessa um, that, yes, they had gone through Gibraltar. Uh, there's no mention of Zambia, but that still remains a possibility. Um but certainly what it means is that um, they had a lot of, they didn't have a lot of prints <laughs> and they basically recycled a lot of them through. That, that, those prints had gone Hong Kong, Singapore, Gibraltar, possibly Zambia to Nigeria. So it's hardly any wonder that they didn't pay a lot for some of them um, because they had been through a few hands before. But I thought that, you know, the Gibraltar thing was interesting because it seemed to sort of, to me, stick out like a sore thumb as somewhere that it possibly could have been a stopping off point before Nigeria. It's close. It's sort of halfway. It's there. You, know, you can go to Gibraltar and then to um, Nigeria. And I thought that that was actually quite interesting. And yes, and it was confirmed. And Phil Morris did say in that commentary that he had for... Uh, Web 6, I think it was, with uh, Debbie Watling, um, where he said that it had gone to Gibraltar and Zambia, and then later it was confirmed that it was Gibraltar. So, Actually, on that point, what documentation would Phil be relying on to confirm that? If it wasn't known before, is there something on the the film prints that he found 
that indicated that they'd been through Gibraltar? Well, that's what I was asking, but apparently not. Um, he must have seen some kind of documentation uh, either at the BBC uh, or something else would have said that the traffic records from Singapore saying it's gone to... Um, it was sent to Gibraltar. Um, so it's, how much documentation exists is um, unknown, perhaps more than what we thought with any luck but Phil's probably found it and he's probably not going to tell us at the moment so we just have to try and find it out ourselves I guess and I think the only thing that Phil's sort of found in Gibraltar I think was an episode of the Sea Devils in black and white and I think a potentially knackered copy of either uh, I think it was an episode of Mind of Evil or something else I think so yeah, yeah. So the Sea Devils was Ascension Island oh was it Ascension Island was it okay right that was a Gibraltar interesting place I did some research about that too the BBC had their Atlantic sort of uh, world service uh, transmat thing there they used to have a lot of staff there they built a school so they had um, families there uh, so the workers uh, they built a school for the children so it's always possible that they got these Doctor Who things old Doctor Who black and white stuff maybe from Australia um and sent them there for them to something to do to watch because there's not much else to do there apart from swimming in the ocean and uh... a horrible place oh. um, so but it's strategic for um, broadcasting so yeah the BBC I think everybody was thinking about um, army uh, air force bases but the the English didn't have a uh, the British didn't have a, a air force base there not until they use it in the Falklands um, so it's the BBC that were there from the mid-60s, I think. You find out all sorts of interesting things when you go look. That's very interesting, very fascinating. So hopefully you can get up to Sydney and uh, and uh, and start digging, you know, with your trusty phone camera and, <laughs> and finding all sorts of interesting things without having to wait for them to photocopy them for you. Well, yes, uh, certainly a lot cheaper. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> next true. year. Maybe next and year. And when you do uh, get up there, we'll have a, a sequel episode, Mike. We'll call the episode Mythbusters. <laughs> debunk some of those myths hopefully you might find a, you know some more correspondence about uh, space pirates up there because you seem to have some sort of affinity with it yeah it seems to crop up an awful yeah. lot doesn't it yeah. maybe, maybe I'm <laughs> destined to find missing episodes and I'll find space pirates fair enough Anyway. All right then, Mike. So thank you very much for coming on to the latest episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast. We've enjoyed having you on. Thank you very much. And hopefully we'll be able to have you on uh, uh, again to, uh, to discuss any further discoveries that you've, uh, you've come across. Thank you very much. No worries. Take care. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.